Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fireside Poems. I'm Dr. J. Today's reading is the first of four I'll be doing from John Greenleaf Whittier's long poem, Snowbound. Snowbound recounts Whittier's experience of a snowstorm as a boy on his family's farm. Published in 1866, a year after the close of the Civil War, it looks back nearly 50 years to what seemed a simpler and happier time, both for Whittier and for the nation. I say seemed because, as Whittier himself calls our attention to, it was a time when slavery made life neither simple nor happy for those Americans held in slavery. Snowbound was a remarkable success, eventually earning Whittier over $10,000, equivalent to $175,000 today, an unprecedented amount for a poem either then or now. Its popularity is often attributed to its sentimentalism and nostalgia, but these are not unworthy goals when achieved with the level of art, thoughtfulness, and honesty we find in Snowbound. Snowbound's 850 lines can be divided into three parts. The first section, which I'll be reading today, describes the coming on of the storm, the storm itself, and the scene the following days of the inhabitants of the house and barn snowbound. The second section tells how the house's snowbound inhabitants, Whittier's mother and father, brother and two sisters, maiden aunt and mentally impaired uncle, and two boarders, a young school teacher and a transient religious enthusiast, together with a dog and cat, passed the time during the snowbound night. Within this middle section are subsections devoted to each of these individuals, with the exception of Whittier himself and his brother. The final section of the poem tells of the coming of help in the form of a plow pulled by teams of oxen from neighboring farms to which the Whittier's oxen will be added. Snowbound is a poem about community, finally, first the household community, and then the larger community of which it's a part. If you long for a greater sense of community today, you may feel the same affection for this poem that its original readers felt in the aftermath of the American Civil War. As I said, today I'll be reading the first section recounting the storm. The next two episodes, I'll be reading selections from the individual portraits, and the fourth episode, I'll be reading the arrival of help and the household reconnection with their larger community. Today's reading is the longest, so I'll only be reading it once. Again, the setting is the Whittier family farm in rural Massachusetts when Whittier was a boy, I'm guessing in his early teens. The animals in the barn, a horse, some cows, a pair of oxen to pull a plow or a wagon, a rooster with his harem of hens, a ram and ewes, are those you'd find in any 19th century family farm. Above all else in this section, Whittier captures the intangible mood of the storm, 
not the moods of the people or of the animals, but the overall mood of the atmosphere, whether in the barn, in the house, or even in the air itself. Let's listen. Snowbound by John Greenleaf Whittier The sun that brief December day rose cheerless over hills of gray and, darkly circled, gave at noon a sadder light than waning moon. Slow tracing down the thickening sky, its mute and ominous prophecy, a portent seeming less than threat, it sank from sight before it set. A chill no coat, however stout, of homespun stuff could quite shut out, a hard, dull bitterness of cold that checked mid-vein the circling race of life-blood in the sharpened face, the coming of the snowstorm told. The wind blew east. We heard the roar of ocean on his wintry shore and felt the strong pulse throbbing there beat with low rhythm our inland air. Meanwhile, we did our nightly chores, brought in the wood from out of doors, littered the stalls, and from the mouths ranked down the herd grass for the cows, heard the horse whinnying for his corn, and sharply clashing horn on horn, impatient down the stanchion rows, the cattle shake their walnut bows, while peering from his early perch upon the scaffold's pole of birch, the cock his crusted helmet bent, and down his querulous challenge sent. Unwarmed by any sunset light, the gray day darkened into night, a night made hoary with the swarm and whirl dance of the blinding storm, as zigzag wavering to and fro crossed and recrossed the winged snow. And ere the early bedtime came, the white drift piled the window frame, and through the glass the clothesline posts looked in like tall and sheeted ghosts. So all night the storm roared on. The morning broke without a sun. In tiny spherial traced with lines of nature's geometric signs, in starry flake and pellicle, all day the hoary meteor fell. And when the second morning shone, we looked upon a world unknown, a nothing we could call our own. Around the glistening wonder bent the blue walls of the firmament, no cloud above, no earth below, a universe of sky and snow. The old familiar sights of ours took marvelous shapes. Strange domes and towers rose up where sty or corn crib stood, or garden wall or belt of wood. A smooth white mound the brush pile showed, a fenceless drift what once was road. The bridle post an old man sat with loose-flung coat and high-cocked hat. The well-curb had a Chinese roof, and even the long sweep high aloof in its slant splendor seemed to tell of Pisa's leaning miracle. A prompt, decisive man, no breath our father wasted. Boys, a path! Well pleased, for when did farmer boy count such a summons less than joy? 
Our buskins on our feet we drew, with mittened hands and caps drawn low to guard our necks and ears from snow. We cut the solid whiteness through, and where the drift was deepest, made a tunnel walled and overlaid with dazzling crystal. We had read of rare Aladdin's wondrous cave, and to our own his name we gave. With many a wish the luck were ours to test his lamp's supernal powers. We reached the barn with merry din, and roused the prison brutes within. The old horse thrust his long head out, and grave with wonder gazed about. The cock his lusty greeting said, and forth his speckled harem led. The oxen lashed their tails and hooked, and mild reproach of hunger looked. The horned patriarch of the sheep, like Egypt's Amon roused from sleep, shook his sage head with gesture mute, and emphasized with stamp of foot. All day the gusty north wind bore the loosening drift its breath before. Long circling round its southern zone, the sun through dazzling snow mist shone. No church bell lent its Christian tone to the savage air. No social smoke curled over woods of snow-hung oak. A solitude made more intense by dreary-voiced elements, the shrieking of the mindless wind, the moaning tree-boughs swaying blind, and on the glass the unmeaning beat of ghostly fingertips of sleet. Beyond the circle of our hearth, no welcome sound of toil or mirth unbound the spell and testified of human life and thought outside. We minded that the sharpest ear the buried brooklet could not hear, the music of whose liquid lip had been to us companionship, and in our lonely life had grown to have an almost human tone. As night drew on, and from the crest of wooded knolls that ridged the west, the sun, a snow-blown traveler, sank from sight beneath the smothering bank. We piled with care our nightly stack of wood against the chimney-back, the oaken log green, huge, and thick, and on its top the stout back-stick, the knotty forestick laid apart and filled between with curious art the ragged brush. Then, hovering near, we watched the first red blaze appear, heard the sharp crackle, caught the gleam of whitewashed wall and sagging beam, until the old rude-furnished room burst flower-like into rosy bloom. While, radiant with a mimic flame, outside the sparkling drift became, and through the bare-bowed lilac tree our own warm hearth seemed blazing free. The crane and pendant trammel showed the Turks' heads on the andires glowed, while childish fancy, prompt to tell the meaning of the miracle, whispered the old rhyme. Under the tree when fire outdoors burn merrily, there the witches are making tea. The moon above the eastern woods shone at its full, 
The hill range stood transfigured in the silver flood, its blown snows flashing cold and keen, dead white, save where some sharp ravine took shadow, or the somber green of hemlocks turned to pitchy black against the whiteness at their back. For such a world and such a night, most fitting the unwarming light, which only seemed where'er it fell to make the coldness visible. Shut in from all the world without, we sat the clean-winged hearth about, content to let the north wind roar in baffled rage on pane and door, while the red logs before us beat the frost line back with tropic heat. And ever when a louder blast shook beam and rafter as it passed, the merrier up its roaring draft, the great throat of the chimney laughed. The house dog on his paws outspread laid to the fire his drowsy head. The cat's dark silhouette on the wall, a couchant tiger's seemed to fall. And for the winter fireside meet between the andire straddling feet, the mug of cider simmered slow, the apples sputtered in a row, and close at hand the basket stood with nuts from brown October's wood. What matter how the night behaved? What matter how the north wind raved? Blow high, blow low, not all its snow could quench our hearth fire's ruddy glow. O oh, time and change, with hair as gray as was my sire's that winter day, how strange it seems with so much gone of life and love to still live on. Ah, brother, only I and thou are left of that circle now. The college from which I've just retired is in a rural area of northern New York. My students from the area had no trouble recognizing what Whittier has described here, both the snowy physical world and the aura. The interiors of barns on small family farms haven't changed that much, just electric lights and the radio. A gutter chain now moves the manure and milking machines do the milking, but when these and the radio are turned off, the atmosphere is pretty much as Whittier conveys it, quiet, a world apart both from the house and from the outside. Nor has the world outside changed much, either during or after snowstorms. But my rural student's strong reaction to snowbound wasn't to what hasn't changed, so much as to something that has changed, which we'll see in the next two episodes. Both they and their peers up from the city, or from anywhere for that matter, feel a strong longing for a world they now feel impossible to them, a world without the devices of social media which mar their lives far more than they do the lives of those of us who are older. We'll visit that pre-social media-bound world next week and the following week. I hope you've enjoyed this reading from Whittier Snowbound, and that you'll join me again next week as I continue reading from it. If you think others might enjoy fireside poems, 
please let them know about it through your social media so that they might join you and me each week by the fireside.